Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we are thrilled to welcome California's youngest member of Congress. She has deep family ties in our hometown of San Diego, as well as some serious foreign policy credentials in Congress. That's right. We're going to be joined in just a few minutes by San Diego Democratic Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, get her update on Ukraine and much more. But first, Guy, um, we have all been watching the Supreme Court hearings back in D.C. this week. Uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson sitting in the hot seat in front of the Judiciary Committee for, I don't know, 20 hours plus. It was... It's all been live on uh, our radio. It was going. a lot. And, and I think I should just read in my notes. It's like, uh, DiFi did fine and Republicans threw a fit. That were my, <laughs> those were my main takeaways. Um, first to start with, you know, our, our senators from California, both Alex Padilla, junior senator uh, appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom not too long ago, and uh, the senior senator, Dianne Feinstein, who would have been chairing this committee if not right. for her, uh, you know, how she handled the last couple of confirmation hearings. Um, not making a ton of news. Uh, Padilla's birthday was actually the first day of the hearing. So had a kind of funny exchange about that. Um, but, t- but to me, I mean, the real takeaway here was the really um, often nasty sort of attacks by Republican members of this committee on Judge Jackson, um, really centering around her sentencing of sexual offenders as a judge uh, over the past decade. Um, And just not, I don't know, like not the typical attacks you would see, a lot of sort of dog whistle and very like, you know, Fox News kind of talking points, it seemed like. And I think using her just kind of as a general stand in for points that they wanted to make. About, about Democrats, the left. A range of right. topics. A lot of times it seemed far afield from her particular story. I will say, Senator Feinstein, it was interesting to see in her opening statements, one thing that she emphasized was the public defender experience mm. uh, that Judge Jackson has. And I think largely that's something we haven't seen talked about a lot, but that President Biden has really leaned into. I've read AP did an analysis, uh, something like 30 percent of his judicial appointments in the first year were public defenders, had public defender experience. It's a way that we've seen in California governors use to shape the judiciary in a different direction. I remember five, six years ago, we worked on a project looking at 
Governor Jerry Brown's right. record and the way that that was one way that he focused on building a more diverse bench. And it's interesting because we hear a lot about the sort of way that the Supreme Court, but really the federal judiciary in general, has been sort of shaped by outside organizations on the right, right? The Heritage Foundation really sort of vetting judges and almost handing list to presidents, uh, Republican presidents. This is, I think, to your point, a more subtle way that Democrats have gone about sort of making their own mark. And I think it's, you know, like a lot of this, it'll take years to sort of see that. But I think a lot of us will be watching uh if she gets confirmed, which is pretty likely unless something extraordinary happens, Justice Jackson and sort of how even in a, you know, 6-3 sort of liberal conservative split, how she shapes her dissents or where she does sort of join in um, with her other colleagues. So I think it'll be fascinating. But she was not the only uh, woman of color being sat on a high court this week. We saw the first Latina approved uh, Patricia Guerrero to sit on the California Supreme Court. She is 50 years old, the daughter of Mexican immigrants, uh, grew up in Imperial County east of San Diego. And, um, you know, she is going to leave her own mark on our high court here in California. Yeah. And part of the, I guess, building legacy uh, for Governor Newsom, I mean, it's one of the longest ways, the longest reaches that governors can have is their judicial appointments. And now Newsom's had two. He still probably has another term to go. I think Schwarzenegger has two at this point, and there's three Jerry Brown judges uh, left on the court. So it will be a way, you know, beyond Newsom's second term that he can leave kind of a legacy. Speaking of the governor, he rolled out a big proposal Speaking this potential week. potential legacies. Right. We'll see. <laughs> this, uh, this $11 billion plan to help Californians deal with rising gas prices, inflation. We've seen this is just the latest in a lot of different ideas in this space. We've seen Moderate Democrats in the legislature come out with a $400 tax refund plan. Legislative leadership say, no, it should be $200. It should be means tested. The governor here doing, you know, proposing $400 debit cards per car up, up to, to two. two. Yeah. Um, grants for free transit, halting the gas tax hike. To me, I don't, you know, tying this to car ownership also uh, proposing to suspend the gas tax. A little regressive. Yeah. And I'm not sure is Newsom you know, threading the needle here or muddying the waters. I mean, to, to mix metaphors, because, you know, I'm, I, I think the clearest contrast Democrats can have in this space is we're proposing direct assistance in your mailbox. Republicans are focusing on gas cutting, companies yeah, on, on cutting the gas tax, yeah. which may or may not make it to your pocketbook. I think this Newsom's proposal kind of muddies this a little bit because there is still this gas tax component. Sure. But like to play devil's advocate here, this is the beginning of negotiations that are really only going to begin in earnest in May. You do have a supermajority of Democrats. Newsom might be able to have his cake and eat it too, right? If he loses the gas tax fight, quote unquote, maybe he can turn around to the electorate in November and say, look, I wanted to do this, but we still got money back to you. Um, I think that, that within California, there's actually a lot of opportunity here for Democrats. I think nationally, to your point, this is going to be a fascinating one to watch because what we've heard, and we've talked about this before from everyone from the Speaker of the House and the President on down, is this question of oil profits and like whether gas tax and other oil tax holidays would actually reach consumers. And I think that there's a lot of legitimate debate about the best right. way to go about this. So, you know, I, I, I think Democrats are in a strong position here in California, but I would say for for Californians, you know, don't don't assume any of this is is written yet because it's it's going to change in the coming months. Totally. And to your point, Newsom spoke 
a few minutes ago. Uh, we're taping late afternoon. He spoke a few minutes ago in Napa and said basically conversations are already underway to develop yeah. some kind of income limit around this. He's open to that. Yeah, they have every reason to, uh, to to cooperate with one another, so to speak. All right, before we go to break and bring in Congresswoman Jacobs, um, Prop 47, that ballot measure from 2014, you probably heard a lot about lately. Uh, this was one that changed a lot of drug possession and petty theft and other um, more you know low-level crimes to misdemeanors. There has been a lot of Republican attacks on it. And we also saw a Democrat from the Central Valley, Rudy Salas, who's happens to be running for Congress against a Republican, what a coincidence. Uh, try to lower the felony threshold. So essentially saying it would be easier to charge somebody with a felony for shoplifting. That got killed this week, as did all of the other uh, Republican attempts to to roll back this. We should say any of these would have had to go before voters. But just quickly, Guy, I, I mean, what do you make? What do you think Democrats are trying to do here? Well, I think it's interesting. It comes on the heels, speaking of voters, of I think there was a Berkeley IGS poll last month that found... 59% of California voters want to see some changes to Prop 47. To me, it's an interesting choice for Democrats to either stand by these reforms or kind of triangulate. And we yeah. saw both of that when this bill came up this week in the Assembly Public Safety Committee. Reggie Jones-Sawyer, he's a progressive. He chairs the committee. He really used this as an opportunity to give kind of a full-throated defense of Prop 47, basically saying lowering this threshold you may or may not see any impact on crime. You definitely will see more black and brown people thrown into prison uh, in California. And this comes, you know, Joan Sawyer, a couple years ago, he had a really tough challenge from a candidate backed by law enforcement. On the same panel, Mia Bonta, she's a progressive here in the Bay Area in the East Bay, not voting. And I Happens to be married to the attorney general who's being challenged from the right. Right. So we'll and see. I couldn't, you know, couldn't get any word from her office on what was behind that decision. I don't even think she's being challenged in November. But it does raise this, you know, right. this issue for Democrats that even people who may not feel overall political pressure feel like they may have to send a different signal on this yeah. issue. And we're going to be doing a lot of reporting on this. This is an issue I'll, I've covered. And I, I think it'll be fascinating to watch how public opinion does change through the year as this debate is fleshed out. I think there's been a lot of sort of using this one law as a boogeyman. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of nuances that get lost in that. So keep an eye on this space. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by Democratic San Diego Representative Sarah Jacobs. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. And today on The Breakdown, we're thrilled to welcome Sarah Jacobs. She's a congresswoman representing parts of San Diego, my hometown. Representative Jacobs, welcome to The Breakdown. 
Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you both. Well, we're really excited to have you. Um, and we do want to get to your biography in a little bit. But you have foreign policy experience. You sit on several uh, policy committees in Congress related to this. Um, and so we want to talk first about what's happening in Ukraine. You know, you and the rest of Congress heard virtually from President Zelensky last week. President Biden is now in Europe meeting with leaders there. What do you see as next in the U.S. response? We heard just today that, you know, Biden has agreed to take, I think, 100,000 refugees um, and is really pushing for more sanctions. What does that look like at this point? Yeah, it's a really good question. And as a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the House Armed Services Committee, I've been uh, working on this issue a lot. I was actually in Ukraine at the end of January meeting with President Zelensky and the ministers of defense and foreign affairs, trying to avoid uh, the very situation we're seeing right now. Um, So just today, President Biden uh, announced uh, that we will take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, will provide a billion dollars in humanitarian aid for Ukraine and Eastern Europe, uh, and that there will be additional sanctions uh, levied on Vladimir Putin and other Russian elites. Um, These sanctions are really to target members of the Russian parliament, the Duma, um, there had been uh, an idea initially that not everyone in the Russian government apparatus necessarily agreed with this war. So we didn't want to have blanket sanctions on everybody in uh, in the Duma. Um, but now it's clear as this continues to go on and, and the members of the Duma aren't speaking up that we do need to do more to put pressure on them. So that's what this additional sanctions look like. You know, I think um, you asked about the way forward. And I I think there's a really delicate balance that President Biden is striking right now, which is making sure that we're raising the costs for Vladimir Putin and holding him accountable for the atrocities that we're seeing in Ukraine, while also making sure we don't get into a direct U.S. to Russia conflict that could have a really high risk of turning into a nuclear conflict, which would risk far more civilians than any sort of U.S. intervention would be able to save. And so that's really the the delicate balance we're doing now. Uh, And I think that President Biden has been masterful in working with our allies in Europe uh, to try and get that balance right. You mentioned that you were in Ukraine just weeks uh, before the invasion began. How has that affected the way that you're viewing this violence being inflicted on the Ukrainian people? You know, I still hear from people I met while I was there about what they're going through. Uh, Some stayed in Kyiv, some uh, are in Poland. And it's really heartbreaking and it really helps put a personal face on this uh, this global issue that we're all seeing. Uh, One of my main takeaways from being there was really in talking to the Ukrainian people, everyday people on the street, some of the folks we met in the bar, just how resilient they were. Every single person we talked to, whether they were from the East or the West of the country, whether they were native Ukrainian or native Russian speakers, they all talked about wanting to stand up and fight for their democracy and fight for the freedoms they become accustomed to. And I think we're really seeing that resilience right now on the battlefield and it's incredibly inspiring. What do you think is are the possible if any diplomatic off ramps at this point. I mean, you've you mentioned, you know, the parliament in Ukraine or in, in in Russia, we have not seen any indication that Vladimir Putin wants to back down. Is this I mean, are we headed just toward a prolonged entrenched war in Ukraine? Like how how could this go forward? That is the central question. And so I'm I'm glad that you asked it because 
I think especially as we're seeing all these horrible images coming out of Ukraine, our natural instinct is to want to do more, to want to do more, to not offer any off ramps because it seems so difficult to think of any way that you, anything you would want to give to someone like Vladimir Putin, who is able to commit such, such horrible acts. Um, But the fact of the matter is that's the only way this conflict is going to end. And so uh, I have been working with the administration to try and make sure that every time we increase sanctions, every time we increase costs and pressure. We're also working on what off-ramps could look like. Now, at the end of the day, it's going to be a negotiation between Russia and Ukraine. And so any deal is going to have to be what the Ukrainians are going are willing to accept. And, and we should make sure that the Ukrainians are in the lead in all of that. Um, but there will also likely be a piece of that off-ramp that is the undoing of some U.S. and Western sanctions, um, some other potential things that the U.S. could agree to in terms of uh, mutual security agreements, uh, uh, some other, you know, missile defense, other things that, you know, we'd actually long been trying to work with Russia on in terms of arms control treaties. Um, and so, I, you know, I can envision what a, a negotiation could look like. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we get to a place where the Ukrainians have the best uh, possible positioning to be able to get the best possible deal. And, and you know, we still need Vladimir Putin to be willing to take it, which is part of why we need to keep raising the costs of the military action. Coming from and representing a military town uh, like San Diego, how does that impact the way you view and govern uh, during conflicts abroad and our potential involvement? You know, it's a really good question because I feel like it's one that I get asked a lot representing such a strong military community as San Diego. And for me, it makes the stakes of this very clear because my constituents understand better than most the horrors of war and what it can mean for families, for individuals. And it makes me really, really cautious in terms of when we should be using our military. Because to me, it's not just this uh, ephemeral idea. It is my constituents. It is the moms and dads and kids and parents and siblings and loved ones who I have to look in the eye and tell them why I'm sending their loved one overseas, why I'm sending their loved one to do this. Um, And that's why I think President Biden made the right call in saying that we will not be sending U.S. troops to Ukraine, um, but that we will be doing everything uh, to uh, defend every inch of NATO and that our commitment to NATO is ironclad. Um, And it it really reminds me constantly the real human toll uh, of war and of conflict. You know, San Diego is both a military community. We also have one of the largest refugee communities in California. Uh, And I represent both of them very proudly. And so uh, for, for me, my constituency really helps me see all sides of this conflict and why we need to be focusing so much on how we make this end. Yeah. Before we turn to your bio, I just want to ask, um, you know, this week, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright died and you tweeted about her death, uh, talking about her as a trailblazer and noting just how long foreign policy has been dominated by men. You are one of just, I think, two women and the only uh, Californian on the two committees you mentioned before, Foreign Affairs and Armed Services. And, and you're only 33 years old. What has your experience been like operating in this space as a young woman? And, and what does someone like Albright's experience sort of mean in that context? 
Yeah, I am so grateful to trailblazers like Secretary Albright, who really paved the way um, in a very male-dominated and still male-dominated area. Um, I'm often the only woman in the room. I'm often the only woman in some of these conversations. I'm often also the only young person in a lot of these conversations. So those are two different uh, perspectives that are very important when we think about conflict and the future and the different perspectives around conflict. Um, and uh you know, I don't I don't even want to tell you all of the crazy things that get said to me sometimes. Um, I was on a Zoom with President Zelensky uh, and someone thought I was an intern or Steny Hoyer's granddaughter. Because um, he yes, clearly uh, invites his granddaughter to correct. meetings on yes. Zoom with foreign leaders. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Actually, I was in a, a classified briefing the other day um, arguing about U.S. policy in Yemen. And one of my uh, colleagues disagreed with me. And instead of just disagreeing, said it's because I didn't know anything and I was a sad little girl. So um, it's really, uh, you know, I, I think that it is definitely better than when Secretary Albright first started, but we have a long way to go to make sure that all of the voices are represented at the table. And we know that that makes better policy and that it's important as we look at what we should be doing moving forward. Well, I read that after you won your seat in 2020, uh, former Congresswoman Susan Davis was asked to give you advice. And she said, you know, you're likely to experience people thinking that you're a staff member initially. I mean, is that kind of stuff that's happened, it sounds like, on the Hill to you? So she told me this and I was like, surely that was 20 years ago. It won't happen to me. And lo and behold, the first minute of new member orientation, as I walk up to the desk to check in, they send me down the staff line. And it has continuously happened since then. So yes, it is definitely uh, still happening. Not that, you know, staff actually in many ways run the place and are incredibly important. So it's not that I'm offended that people think I'm staff, um, but it, you know, I think we need to start recognizing that in these rooms, it shouldn't be unusual for there to be young women in positions of power and that we shouldn't just assume the young women are there to, to get the coffee or do the note taking. And um, I was literally presiding over the House of Representatives. Like most staff aren't even allowed on the floor of the house. And I was presiding and someone still thought I was an intern. I'm just going to take a deep breath to respond to that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are talking with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs. Um, I want to uh, switch and talk a little bit about how you ended up in Congress at the ripe age of 33. You grew up in San Diego and... Um, your grandfather is very well known there. He uh, co-founded Qualcomm. So I guess to start, like, what was your experience like growing up in a place where, you know, your family, not only his company name was on a lot of buildings, but your family name, the Jacobs. Like, how did you think about that and sort of process that as a kid? And how did your family talk to you about it? You know, I'm really grateful that my family was very intentional, intentional about making sure that we understood that what we had was not normal uh, and that it therefore made it our unique responsibility to do everything we could to make the world fairer and to make sure that more kids had the kinds of opportunities that we had. You know, my grandfather was the first in his family to go to college. Um, he went on scholarship. Uh, he worked at a public university at UCSD um, before he started uh, Qualcomm and link a bit before that. Um, and, you know, he was always very cognizant of the kinds of, um, you know, public societal investments that were made that enabled him to get where he was and always wanted to make sure that while our family got to live the American dream, other families would get to as well. And you left San Diego for college 
ultimately came back. But I'm wondering, you could have done a lot of things in life, in your career. Like what ultimately, A, brought you back and B, made you think, OK, this is, you know, I want to be a, in public office. Yeah, I want to do... run for office. Such a... <laughs> I mean, I know people think it's glamorous, but it's not always a glamorous job. And to your point, you take a lot of heat. So like, yeah, why that? Yeah, it's definitely not glamorous. Um, Like, I did not think I would run for office. This was not part of the five-year plan. This was not anything I thought I would do. Um, I went to uh, school and studied political science, international relations, then stayed and got my master's in international security policy and international conflict resolution and worked at the UN, worked at the State Department, thought that I would be a behind the scenes policy person. That's what I like doing. I felt like as I was thinking about where I could uniquely give back based on the sort of opportunities and privileges I'd been given, I really felt like it was working on the toughest problems that affected the most vulnerable people. And for a long time, I thought that meant working internationally in extreme poverty, in conflict resolution, in trying to address some of these really difficult and intractable issues. Uh, And I worked on the 2016 presidential campaign for Secretary Clinton on her foreign policy team, and then assumed I'd go right back into government. Um, But as you all know, we did not win that election. And so for a year after that, I ran an international education nonprofit that was working to connect schools around the world to the internet. It was the perfect job for me in 2017 because it felt like I was doing good in the world and it had nothing to do with Donald Trump. Um, But I actually landed at JFK the day that the first Muslim ban was announced. Uh, And I'm not a lawyer, so I felt pretty helpless. I like brought food to the lawyers who were in the terminal helping people with their paperwork. But I realized that what I did know how to do was, was to make policy. And um, shortly after that, my, uh, all of the the rhetoric coming out of the White House around the LGBTQ plus community. My youngest sibling is trans and my middle sibling is gender nonconforming. So a lot of it was uh, affecting my family very personally. And I just realized if I was going to stay true to that idea of working on the toughest problems that were affecting the most vulnerable people, that the end of the day, while the work I was doing overseas was important, like everything that I cared about was at risk here at home. So I moved back home to San Diego thinking that I would help someone else run for Congress. And support them and write their policy papers and all of that. Um, But eventually uh, I was told that if I wanted there to be a woman or a young person uh, that I had to run myself. And so I did. And you ran in a Northern California, Northern San Diego, Orange County district first, uh, did not make it through the primary. That seat actually got won by Mike Levin, a, a Democrat. But I wonder, I mean, you know, we talked about your family's wealth and, and you did get support through a super PAC um, during the campaign. But that is obviously not a normal path for somebody, especially who's younger. Um, what do you see having been through all of that as the way to get more millennials involved who may not have the kind of privilege or just even connections to understand, you know, how to go about running for Congress? Like, that's just the first step, even if you can raise the money to do it, you know? Yeah, it's a really great question. And and it's something I think about a lot. Um, and I think the big piece of it is having there be more young people, be more women, be more people of color, LGBTQ plus people in positions of power um, to make it so that voters don't see leadership only a certain way in their mind. A lot of what we had to do in my campaign was help people unlearn the you know, unconscious bias they had of who looks like a leader and what leadership sounds like. And I can't tell you how many people would tell me like, we love everything you're saying, but I don't know, you just don't look right sitting at the head of a table, but I'm not sure why. Like, I know why. 
Um, <laughs> and so, so a lot of what I see as my role in this is helping to break some of those, those boundaries in people's minds so that when they see more young people, it's not as hard. They don't have to spend as much time convincing them that this is what leadership can look like. Um, but I'm also one of the recruitment co-chairs for the DCCC, and I'm working on recruiting awesome candidates across the country and focusing on young people and women and people we don't normally see. And, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of ways we can make sure that we're helping folks like that get elected. But a big piece of it is also all of us young people who look at politics and think like, oh, that's so horrible. I don't want to be part of that. Like you can't opt out because if we keep opting out, it's only going to be uh, the, you know, the uh, that's in there. And so uh, we each of us need to recognize that we need to step up and that you're never too young to make a difference. And frankly, if we learned anything the past six years, it's that the, the grownups don't know what they're doing either. So we might as well have more young people at the table. I don't know if you're recommending this to the folks that you're recruiting, but you also use this really novel exercise to prepare you for running for office with a group of friends. I read about it. To me, it sounded like the hangout from hell, but please tell, tell, us, about, us, yeah. tell us about this experience. <laughs> yes, I did. And I do actually recommend it to candidates. So I wrote down every horrible thing I could imagine anyone saying about me. You know, as a, a young woman, a big part of my hesitancy in running for office was like this fear of judgment. I think we, especially as young women have this idea of like people judging you and, and the gaze on you and sort of what it means to step out of that and, and be vulnerable and, and use your voice in ways that young women historically have been sort of societally told is not our role. Um, and so I had my friends read to me over and over again, all of the horrible things I could think about, about myself to try and desensitize it. And so I wouldn't be afraid it, you know, whatever came out on the campaign trail. Now, unfortunately you can't really predict the things people are going to make up about you. For instance, uh, that you, you know, people would say about me, despite, as you heard my resume, that I never had a real job and I'd only ever had internships. Definitely. That was not on my list of things. I had my friends read to me because who could have guessed that? Um, but uh, it did help in just starting to to build up that sort of resiliency around the kinds of things people say when you're running for office. And are you still friends with all of them? I am, yes. <laughs> all right, we're going to leave it there. Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy is our producer, as, long as, as well as my co-host today. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. Again, I'm Guy Marzarati. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos. Be nice. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, 
It's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.